Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There are few people on the planet who are as universally respected and revered as Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall is in Chicago. She's meeting with 300 members of her Roots and Shoots program, and she's appearing at the Jane Goodall Institute's Spring Celebration event at the Hyatt Regency. Goodall travels 300 days a year in her campaign to give people hope. Great to talk with you, Dr. Jane Goodall. And good talking with you as well. I wonder if you um, get enough credit as an organizer. Um, The Roots and Shoots program is a terrific thing, and you've been encouraging young people to get out there and make a difference in the environment, and you've got these things all over the planet now. Uh, what, What do you love about Roots and Shoots? Well, what I love about Roots and Shoots is, one, it's young people of all ages, kindergarten, university, and everything in between. Uh, Two, uh, each group chooses three projects. They choose. We don't dictate. They choose a project to help people, a project to help animals, a project to help the environment. And once you listen to them, once they understand the problems, once you empower them to take action, and Roots and Shoots is all about taking action, then their enthusiasm, determination is absolutely uh, extraordinary. And this is what gives me the most hope these dark days on our planet, because everywhere I go, there are young people with shining eyes wanting to tell Dr. Jane what they've been doing to make this a better world. And you're going to meet 300 local youth from around this area who have been participating in Roots and Shoots. Um, That's a lot of uh, young people energy. It's a lot of young people energy. And when you think that's from, you know, around one city, and this is what I'm meeting around the world. So, you know, and it's in China, it's around all over Africa, we're starting in the Middle East. It's most European countries, all the West European countries, all over North America, spreading in South America, and growing in Asia too. So it's really exciting. It's interesting, we just had this example of young people power in the streets last week with a million and a half young people on a climate strike, uh, led by Greta Thunberg from uh, Sweden. You were on a panel with Greta Thunberg at uh, the Davos conference, and um, she's a remarkable young woman who really laid it out to people at that Davos conference. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. She said... um Some people, some companies, some decision-makers in particular have known exactly what priceless values they've been sacrificing to make unimaginable amounts of money. And I think uh, many of you here today belong to that group of people. What was it like being there with Greta? Well, it was, you know, she's just an example of, of what I just said. Once young people understand the problems and we listen to them uh, and empower them to take action, that they are changing the world. There's no question about it. And I just hope and pray that at least quite a large percentage of those young people who went on strike and marched in the streets, that they will actually follow up and roll up their sleeves and do something. 
And when it comes to this climate crisis and our lifestyles, uh, it seems like a lot of substantial amount of people don't want to change our lifestyles. You've been talking about this for quite some time. What do you see? You travel the world. Are people changing their lifestyle? Well, it's interesting. I mean, yes, there's much greater awareness and certainly not enough people are changing their lifestyle. But I have wonderful examples of people who come up to me after a lecture, write to me later, who actually have changed their lifestyles. And it's because of making an impact in this way that I continue to travel. It's horrible. People say, we well, must love traveling. You couldn't love traveling today, could you? With plane delays and, you know, waiting in lines in airports and hotels and all the rest of it. And actually leaving a fairly heavy ecological footprint myself doing this. But, you know, nobody's given me a magic carpet. And although you can reach people through the internet, through, you know, electronically, again and again and again, people say, well, I've watched you, I've watched your documentaries, I've listened to your TED Talks, but it's just not the same as when you're actually here. What kind of connection do you think people need to, I mean, this is the human connection that we seem to crave when we're, you know, making a substantial change in in our lifestyles and things. Are we lacking something there? I, I, you know, I know our connection to nature is so hard to understand. And uh, I know Greta Thunberg always talks about her dogs and you see her in all her uh, interviews, happiest with her dogs. I saw a clip of you talking about how your dogs were important to you and uh, really helped get you involved in nature. And people, in the simplest of ways, can get a window into animal consciousness. Yes, well, you know, when I'd been with the chimpanzees for about two years and I was told I had to go and get a degree, I hadn't been to college at that time, and I get to Cambridge to do a PhD because that's what Lewis Leakey arranged for me. And I was told, Jane, you shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names. That's not scientific. They should have had numbers. And you can't talk about them having personalities, minds capable of problem solving and emotions because those are unique to us. And it was actually taught at that time the difference between us and all other animals was the difference of kind. And fortunately, I had a wonderful teacher when I was a child who taught me that at least in this respect, these erudite professors were totally wrong. And that was my dog. You know, you can't share your life in a meaningful way with a, a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a horse, a pig, a, a bird, and not know we're not the only beings on this planet with personalities, minds, and emotions. And um, yeah, I'm a dog owner myself. I'm always trying to do right by my dog and make him happy. And um, if you can kind of expand on that and, and, and include a couple other animals in there and do right by these animals and think about their connection with us you know, on our planet together, you can begin to get somewhere. Well, that's right. And, you know, if you Google not Picasso the artist, but Pig Casso, uh, here is this unbelievably amazing pig, but but she just represents pigs, and she was rescued from slaughter. Uh, she's in a sanctuary. The person who rescued her is an artist, and she noticed this pig was so interested, so she gave her a paintbrush, 
And if you do this Google of Picasso, you'll be absolutely amazed. Not only is she loving what she does and getting all excited, but she's actually, she knows when she's finished and uh, her paintings are selling for $500. I've seen the video. It's it's amazing. The uh, it? it seems to be like the internet is mostly good for animal videos and mostly good for us seeing um, different things about the animal world. We uh, People seem to really gravitate to those things. They do, but, you know, the sad thing is that children are spending more and more time uh, messing about with their little gadgets and iPhones and videos and YouTube and not getting into nature. And although it's wonderful to watch these things, there's nothing can compensate for being out, getting your hands dirty, seeing little insects wiggling about in the grass. And if some children can't get into nature, even in the classroom, you can watch seeds changing into little plants. You can see flowers opening. You can see butterflies emerging from from chrysalis. So, you know, but children need this. And it's been proven scientifically that being out in nature is good for children's psychological development. To come back to my dog, my dog takes me always out to the forest preserve because he's a hound dog and he wants to go for miles with his nose to the ground. So I go to the forest with him and it's great. And everybody you see in the forest is happy. Everybody in the Mm. forest preserve you pass by on the trail is glad to be there. It's an entirely different uh, universe than passing someone on the street. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, we need this. It's peace that we get when we're out in nature. You mentioned your dog that he loves when his nose to the ground. It makes me so unhappy to see people walking their dogs and the dog stops to sniff and for them it's like, you know, looking in a shop window or reading messages. Yank, they're pulled away and it, it really hurts me to see that. I'm talking with Dr. Jane Goodall. She is in Chicago meeting with 300 members of her Roots and Shoots program and appearing at the Goodall Institute Spring Celebration at the Hyatt Regency. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have Milo Stalek, and he'll be talking about Laszlo Nemesh's new film, Sunset. Uh, I wanted to ask you about becoming an activist because you often tell the story about, um, you know, I think a lot of people just think Jane Goodall just came out as Jane Goodall. But you... Um, <laughs> You tell the story about going to the Chicago Academy of Sciences and a a chimpanzee uh, symposium that you helped organize, and and it changed kind of your strategy and things. It was uh, here in Chicago. Yeah, that was 1986, and um, the power behind it was Dr. Paul Heltney, who was uh, head of the Academy at that time. And we brought together those people who by then were studying chimps in, I think it was seven different field sites across Africa. When I began, it was just me. So the idea behind it was, let's find out how chimpanzee behavior may differ in different environments. Let's see how much behavior is so ingrained chimp, so instinctive, if you like, that it's everywhere. And that was the main purpose, learning about cultural differences. But we had a session on conservation, uh, which was shocking, like everywhere. People reported destruction of forests, the beginning of the bushmeat trade, that's the commercial hunting of wild animals for food, the growth of human population moving into the forest with their cattle. And uh, it was shocking. And we also had a session on 
conditions in some captive situations, including medical research labs. And you know, when you've spent time with chimpanzees and you realize how unbelievably like us they are in all ways, to see your closest relative with whom we share 98.6% of our DNA structure, to see them in five foot by five foot steel barred cages. Uh, it was heartbreaking, that secretly filmed footage. And so I went to the conference as a researcher. I had built up a research station. I could spend days out in the forest understanding about the interconnection of all living things and the importance of even tiny, seemingly insignificant little species and feeling this spiritual connection with nature. And But I left as an activist because I just knew I had to do something, even though I didn't quite know what to do. And you ended up founding Roots and Shoots in 1991, not, not too long afterwards. And Yes, even before that. Um, I first decided I'd have to go and learn a bit more about the situation in Africa because I don't think you can really talk meaningfully unless you see with your eyes. Uh, and I learned a lot, but I also learned about the plight of so many of the African people living in and around the forests. And it came to a head when I flew over the tiny Gombe National Park where I began in 1960 and where our the students are still working today, by the way. And when I began, it was part of the great equatorial forest belt stretching all the way to West Africa. When I flew over in 1990, I looked down on a tiny island of forest surrounded by completely bare hills, more people living there than the land could support, too poor to buy food elsewhere, overused infertile farmland, people struggling to survive. And that's when it hit me. If we don't do something to help the people, to help them find alternate ways of making a living other than cutting down the last trees in their desperate effort to grow food or make money from charcoal, if we don't do this, we have absolutely no hope of saving the chimpanzees, the forests, or anything else. And so that's when JGI began our Take Care or Takari program which is now in six other African countries. And the villagers, instead of resenting us, you know, why, why, why are they protecting forests and caring about animals and not bothering about us? Now they understand that protecting the environment is good for their own future as well as wildlife. They've become our partners in conservation. It's very exciting. I had a couple of the young women who helped organize the school strike in Chicago on the program the other day, and um, uh, they're really excited about the Green New Deal, and I think for the same reasons that you were just talking about, that it puts people at the center and that there is a sense of uh, economic justice in, in while there's environmental justice at the same time. and. Uh, in, it's a different thing that a carbon tax, it just doesn't feel, I asked them about the carbon tax and they were like, I don't, I don't want to, that doesn't appeal to me. It does, doesn't have a, a human resonance to me. Whereas, you know, this effort to bring it all together and put humans at the center and, and at least include them in the project is, uh, is appealing. Yes. And this is why it's so important for the, the uh, roll up your sleeves, go out and take action. Like, our roots and shoots groups all around the world are planting trees. They're doing organic gardens. 
Um, they're volunteering in shelters. They're lobbying against meat eating with the terrible harm it does to animals and the environment, and incidentally to our own health. Um, they're lobbying against companies like Monsanto, poisoning the poisoning the earth and the food that we eat with these horrible chemical poisons. The whole idea of, uh, of vegetarianism seems to scare a lot of people. Uh, there's there's people who are, don't like the Green New Deal say they're going to take your hamburgers away from you. Uh, how do you? How do you well, you uh, know, first of all, the alternatives are so like meat that I can't eat them. <laughs> I stopped eating meat because, you know, once you know about factory farms, once you've seen secretly filmed video of the way the animals are treated, billions of them now. Um, you know, I, I I looked at a piece of meat on my plate and I thought, what does this symbolize? Fear, pain, death. And that was it for me. That was the end of my meat eating. I was back in 69, I think. And you feel better, you feel lighter, and also you, you have a clean, cleaner conscience. I'm a more recent vegetarian convert, but uh, I completely concur. The um, Even cutting down on meat uh, would yeah. seem to be a good first step for a lot of people, and hopefully, yeah. you know... Yeah, like Meatless happen. Mondays has taken off. But once people... I mean, just go to Indian vegetarian, for example, and it's so delicious that... Uh, if you don't tell people, oh, I'm going to have a, um, I'm going to have a fundraiser and the food's vegetarian. Some people say, oh, well, then I'm not going. You know, I want my meat. But if you don't tell them, and you just serve that, they're just delighted. They don't even think about whether it's meat or not. I was at my son's college, and I walked by a poster of, um, here is the animal mass on the North American continent, and it was. Uh, it was all farm animals. It wasn't animals living in the wild. It was yeah. all cows yeah. and things. And it's it's shocking to think that it we're... Is. It is. This is where we're devoting our energy. Mm-hmm. And it really is energy that we are devoting to all these... Yeah. And, you know, we, we're we growing more grain to feed animals than to feed starving people. It's shocking. Absolutely shocking. And the amount of fossil fuel to get the 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 grain to the animals, the animals to the abattoir... Uh, the meat to the shops and from the shop to the table. Masses and wasting water, changing vegetable to, I'm sorry, animal to vegetable protein, Um, let alone the cruelty and the suffering and the pollution. You know, when there's a flood and the waste from the hog farms gets into the river, pollutes everything, kills everything. Uh, We really are harming the planet. We're going through a very dark time. And I don't know how big the window of time is. If we don't take action now, it could be too late in the long run for our own species. You're doing your campaign, your global campaign, to give people hope. Um, and yet it is a dark time. And, you know, how do you hope and dark time? Are there, they're a hard uh, ball of wax there. Well, my hope is, first of all, the young people, we've talked about that. Um, And then secondly, there's this amazing brain that we have, which we have sometimes used to ill effect, but we're beginning to come up with technological solutions to help us live in greater harmony. And then when we start using it to try and lighten our own ecological footprints, then the next is the resilience of nature. I talked about the bare hills around Gombe. 
They're not there anymore. Seeds stay in the ground. Roots can grow again if the if the soil is given a chance. And, you know, there's even corridors now linking the previously cut-off chimps of Gombe to other remnant populations. So, you know, animal species on the brink of extinction. Can we give another chance? And I believe, wasn't the here in Chicago this big effort along the river to bring back natural vegetation? Oh, Am I right? Absolutely. The, the the people are trying to create a corridor right up the river. Yes, there you are. And that's happening in many places, in many countries. And, um, you know, animal species on the very brink of extinction can be given another chance. And then finally, well, there's two more, really. I suppose social media, for the first time in human history, we can call on people all around the world to take part in something like this march. Um, and then the indomitable human spirit, the people tackling what seems to be impossible and not giving up, the people with tremendous physical disabilities who lead lives inspiring to those around them. And I meet these people everywhere I go, and I encounter extraordinary projects of renovation. And, you know, so these are what give me hope, and this is what I spread and we have so much doom and gloom. And if people don't have hope, that is the end, especially young people. Because, you know, if they lose hope, they become apathetic. What's the point of bothering? That's the end of us. Dr. Jane Goodall is in Chicago. She's meeting with 300 members of her Roots and Shoot program and appearing at the Jane Goodall Institute Spring Celebration event at the Hyatt Regency tomorrow. And uh, thanks very much for joining us. Great to talk with you. I hope people will check out the Jane Goodall Institute webpage. There is a lot there for people and can get people involved in Roots and Shoots. Yes, and by the way, everybody can help by making a donation because the event tomorrow celebrates my 85th birthday. Yay! <laughs> Happy <laughs> so birthday! 85 years and still traveling 300 days a year. How about that? Not bad. Not I, bad. I'd, I'd take it. <laughs> okay. Keep up the great work. Thanks a lot. Coming up after the break, we'll have Milo Stelic about the film Sunset by Laszlo Nemesh. It's opening in theaters today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Great to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Well, today we are going to talk about a film, Sunset, made by a very interesting filmmaker, Laszlo Nemesh. His first feature was Son of Saul. It won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. It was really intense, and it took you inside a concentration camp. I, I, I couldn't bear to watch it. I know you really liked it. Well, it's really an attempt to put you inside that experience 
in a situation in which you, as the spectator, were kind of the subject of the film in a way because it was all shot from the main character's subjective point of view. And that's how it became very, very intense because you saw ostensibly what the main character was seeing. The situation in Son of Saul was a father searching for the body of his son, which he never finds, but which he's looking for in all of the horror, confusion, violence, dead bodies of the concentration camps. So that was the kind of landscape that he depicts for us. And what's interesting about Nemes from that first film, his first feature, Son of Saul, to the second feature, Sunset, is that the same principle remains because also in Sunset, as the central mechanism, we have a search. And this character is searching for her brother, essentially, in, in pre-World War I Europe. And everything seems very, from looking at the trailer, seems very explosive, like, the, like uh, there's danger in every corner. Yes, the situation is that the, from the, at the very beginning of the film, a young woman, a beautiful young woman, comes to Budapest to apply for a job in a very famous millinery shop. We find out very quickly that her name, Lighter, a last name, Lighter, is the name of the owners of that shop who had died in a fire when Iris, the, the main character, was two years old. And the shop has been taken over by the manager who has rebuilt the business. She wants to get a job. She wants to come back. She wants to reunite. She wants to find out what exactly happened with uh, with her parents. And she finds out that she actually had a brother, which she didn't know about. And so most of the film is a search for her brother who has become kind of an anarchist revolutionary. So here's the political instability background pitting three elements, pitting the aristocracy, which is, of course, very dissolute, which is based in Vienna, which is, uh, you know, sexually very profligate. There's a suggestion or a, a major theme of girls from the millinery shop being sold off into prostitution to the aristocracy. That's one of the themes of the films. Just on the brink of this major event, which was to come, which was, of course, the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand and World War I, uh, which then ensued. And the film, in fact, ends with a little coda piece, maybe a two-minute sequence, in which we actually see what followed. It was the soldiers now in the trenches, standing in the rain, in the horror, which became World War I. I'm talking with Milo Stelik about the film Sunset by Laszlo Nemesh. It's opening in theaters today. Coming up in a moment, we're going to have Weekend Passport and talk with Nari Safavi and one of Israel's most famous musicians. Well, it sounds like this has so many more bells and whistles and wheels in motion than the Holocaust film, in which you know the immersive technique would really be effective. Here, you're out in the world, and you're, 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 you've got such a big thing going on. Does this translate? Because a lot of the reviews I'm reading say, wow, beautiful moving camera, but I don't know if I got enough story momentum behind this thing. You know, I'm very conflicted in saying anything negative about Sunset, which I could. And the reason that I could is because it's not a perfect film. It's, uh, in a way, shows the kind of pressure that's put on filmmakers after their first success, which is enormous, and which very few filmmakers, including in this case uh, Nemes, are questionably able to handle. 
you know, that said, there are so many things in this film which are new, which are interesting, which are done in a very new way that he's really breaking into new ground. And the two ways that he's breaking new ground are visually, because the film is, again, very subjective, constantly camera in motion. The situation here is, like in Son of Saul, hundreds and, in this case, thousands of extras and characters, all how they costume them all had to be a massive, <laughs> massive undertaking because it's very beautiful. It's set you know, in a very beautiful fin de siècle world. And so he, here you are in this kind of tense situation. At the same time, not everything here makes complete sense because it's a film that fluctuates between dream and reality. You don't know what's necessarily what's always real and what's being played out or what's being imagined. Uh, that's probably pretty deliberate. I mean, here he's making this film in part as an analogy probably to today where we don't know what is real and what is not or we're descending into this universe. Exactly. And that's, that's the reason for not criticizing it because it's exactly how it feels because you are in a situation like we are today in which you really don't quite know What's happening, right? And he refuses, uh, Nemes, to really put in very specific events. So it's not like historically accurate that you're going to go back and by learning something about Budapest in 1913, it's going to give you some clue because that's not there. He's more interested in two things. He's more interested in creating the atmosphere, this kind of atmosphere of low level of fear, of something horrible which you know is going to happen, but you don't quite know how, what, or where, and are really powerless as an individual to stop it, at which you have individuals who are caught on this wheel of history which is turning, in which their lives are caught up in the lives of others through no fault of their own. And at the same time, he is not so interested in telling a story as a linear story as creating something which is an experience. And the second element here besides the visual is the sound. He said he spent six months working on the soundscape, which is intense. It's all level. You're constantly hearing people, voices, music layered over. So it becomes very, very immersive, not oppressive but very, very immersive. So again, he wants to put you into the center of something which essentially, like Son of Saul in a different way, was a roller coaster ride. All right, so who is his audience for this? Was he thinking, I want to talk to people in today's Hungary, or is he talking to everyone about the fascist politics that's going on around the globe? He doesn't specify it. I think it's probably universal, it's probably both. Obviously, he had a lot of Hungarian money thrown at him. He won the Oscar. Hey, you know, we celebrate whoever, whatever. We, we can get it. I think that's from where he felt a lot of this, this pressure. I think his personal interest is to really experiment and find this kind of new language and a new way of depicting through cinema events that the cinema doesn't often touch upon very well because stories in and of themselves are great, but they're also reductive. They can oversimplify. They can get us from this level of uncertainty and unknowing in which we live and try to rep represent something that's really not there, to tell us that something is linear, that something makes sense, that something is dramatically plausible, where in fact it's not. I mean, the craziness that we live through day to day, in which everyone wakes up 
uh, in the morning and says, what is this? What just happened? I can't believe it. That's kind of the level of disbelief that you live in. That's the disbelief that he really creates very, very well in, in Sunset. Laszlo Nemesh is the filmmaker. Uh, Sunset is the film. It's in a bunch of locations. It's getting uh, better distribution than Son of Saul did. So it should be interesting to watch. Thanks for joining us, Milos Stalek. Thank you very much, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, and we'll talk with one of Israel's most famous musical artists. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, our look at how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here with several suggestions on how to spend your time this weekend. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Well, uh, let's go right into our featured piece. Where are we going first? We're going to Israel, and a great Israeli uh, vocalist and singer is performing uh, this week in Chicago, and we're going to talk to him. Idan Rahel is known for the Idan Rahel Project, and he's got a new album that came out in January, and If You Will Come to Me. Nice to talk with you, Idan Rahel. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me in your show. Thank you. Tell us a little about yourself. You seem to like to collaborate in music and find collaboration to be uh, very invigorating. Um, what's going on here? The Idan Rachel project is a kind of a musical experiment that started 15 years ago that I've invited over 150 musicians and singers from different parts of the world, from Yemen, from Ethiopia, from uh, North America, from South America, from East Europe, and of course from Israel. The youngest member of the project is 16, and the elders are 83 and 91 years old. Together, we released uh, over uh, nine albums. In every album, you'll find many songs. Each song is sang by different lead singer and played by different musicians. And we actually are building bridges between cultures, between nations, breaking all the boundaries, bringing people uh, together. Yeah, get in there and break the boundaries. Let's hear the title track from your new album, and if you will come to me, uh, tell us something about this song. Who's collaborating with you here? After all these years, this is the first album that I wanted to go solo, and this is uh, also the tour that I'm doing now is a solo uh, tour that I'm playing uh, all the melodies and the songs that I wrote with many singers and with many musicians from around the world, and I'm going solo for the first time with this title track, Ve'im Voyelai, and If You'll Come To Me. Enjoy the track and uh, the song, and we'll talk right after this. (laughs) 
That's the title track from Idan Reichel's new album. And if you will come to me, he's going to be at City Winery tomorrow night. And uh, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, Idan, uh, the congratulations. It's, uh, it seems like you have done Thank a you. lot of collaborative work. And, uh, and this album sounds pretty good. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about where you get your inspirations from uh, on these things, especially on the collaborative projects, and how well are these collaborative projects received in Israel? Uh, it's a very good question, because the, once you're getting into the studio, it doesn't matter if, if, the, if, the, if the artist is famous or it's the first time for him in, in the studio. I've collaborated uh, throughout the years with Alicia Keys, and with the countertenor Andreas Scholl and the, uh, the French uh, star uh, Patrick Bruel. On the other hand, with really people that it was the first time for them uh, in, the, um, in the studio. Uh, collaborations that we are very proud on is that I, we brought for the first time with my band the vocalists uh, from the Palestinian community uh, to the Israeli mainstream radio. Even uh, the German, uh, the German language, we recorded for the first time a song with a German singer in a country that it's still forbidden for the Philharmonic Orchestra of Israel to play the music of Wagner because of the uh, trauma of the Holocaust. So we are bringing a lot of musical um, challenges to the Israeli uh, radio. And once we are, for, for us, it's always Israeli music. And once I'm touring outside of our country, people define it as world music. Uh, because I think that uh, we are creating kind of a, a new country, a new island, uh, that all this music was, maybe it was not possible in another place in the world, but it's just out there in the world. So you feel like um, the Israeli radio audience likes to be challenged? They find you're popular. You're really popular. Yeah, actually, it's a great honor and it's a great privilege to be able to do what we do in Israel. Just to explain uh, for the listeners how weird it is, imagine that in the most mainstream radio that you got, uh, there will be played uh, just a group that uh, the singer is from... uh, uh, from China, and the back vocalist is from Italy, and there is an accordion player from Bulgaria, and a drummer from Iraq, and it will beat the charts of Beyonce and and uh, <laughs> you know and Madonna and everything because you would expect it to be played in some niche, uh, I don't know, world music um, program. But the, what I love in in Israel that the radio received it as they said, you know what, this is the music of the people of our streets. So we are, yes, we are playing it. And it became like our mainstream. Well, let's hear another song from your uh, new record. And this one, it says, 
that it's Idan Rahel and Danny Suarez? Who is, who is that? Yeah. So, as I said, it's a solo album, but I couldn't resist uh, with uh, collaboration. So this is actually a very interesting collaboration that we recorded also in Tel Aviv, in Israel, also in Havana, Cuba, and also in Miami. Danai Suarez is one of very interesting uh, vocalists from Cuba, but we also collaborate here with 79 years old, two singers from the legendary Cuban band Aragon, that were from the same generation of Buena Vista Social Club. So uh, this is it. Enjoy it. There's Idan Rahel and uh, Dene Suarez from Cuba uh, putting the moves on. It sounds great. Thank you. This is uh, my second collaboration with Danai Suarez uh, on my album. Our, our first uh, collaboration uh, was nominated to the Latin Grammy, uh, Grammy uh, last year. And I'm, ha I'm happy that it's uh, crossing over from our uh, market of the Israeli market to different places. Suddenly, one of our songs is, was number one hit in Poland and this one was nominated to the Grammy. So it, it's really great that it's like slowly by slowly like uh, reaching out to different audiences um, and also with the help of like like your show today. So thank you. Idan, listening to this track, uh, I was thinking about all of a sudden I remembered uh, the great Yasmin Levy who actually Indeed. sings in, uh, in Ladino. Have you ever thought about performing in Ladino? Yasmin Levy is uh, for those of the audience or listeners who are not uh, who are not familiar with the music. She she brought um, back. She's one of the to... greatest voices on earth. First, let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. So Yasmin Levy is is uh, one of our great uh, inspirations of of Israel. She's a great uh, singer that brought the old music of the Ladino. I didn't I didn't collaborate with any Ladino singer till today. There is one singer that I we tried something, but I didn't feel that artistically it, it uh, uh, there was uh, you know this magic. You know, it's what I'm doing is we always start from from the music. We always start. It's not an anthropological research, or we are falling in love with some singer or or a musician or inspiration, and we just you know trying to to record. 
a lot, a lot of a lot of songs are at the end of the day are staying uh, hidden at the hard drives of the of the studio, <laughs> unreleased. You know, it's like uh, editing a movie. You know what I mean? Well, I can give you are. a list of great Ladino musicians if you want to collaborate with them. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> More Carbasi is one of them. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I wanted to ask about the festival that you uh, put on annually. It's a big 10-day festival. Tell us about that. Yes. Uh, so um, in Israel, we are selling out uh, big arenas, and, and we always thought that it would be nice to to invite the audience, um, our fans, to an event, not just for a concert. It will be a few hours. Then we managed to do it uh, a few years ago, and we are doing it kind of an annual uh, festival of our project that takes uh, uh, 10 days. Uh, the people are coming to Israel, if you're by any chance in Israel, around June and July. It takes place for 10 days. People are coming, and there is, uh, they're coming to the venue, walking in. There are a lot of galleries of photographers and, and art. Uh, there is a chef. Uh, Israeli chef, one of our top uh, chefs of Israel, that is uh, designing all the sh- all the food uh, course and 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 there are many bands um, of new young artists that we're giving them uh, the stage and the and they are getting uh, their sometimes their first exposure for for the audience and we're playing every night so it's a kind of an event that I think that nowadays at 2019 uh, I think it's great just to just to come to an event a full a full on event. Sounds like fun. Let's hear one more uh, song off your new album. It's called Let's Meet. Yes, Keteru, uh, sang by Alom David. This suddenly was, we got response from Ethiopia, from the, uh, from the let's say, the NPR of Ethiopia, uh, <laughs> that are keep playing it all the time. So it's, uh, it's great. It's a very, very, uh, um, it's attractive with a very strong uh, Ethiopian uh, appeal. That's Idan Rahel and his song Lest's Meet off his new album, And If You Will Come to Me. And we're going to give away two pair of tickets to Idan's concert at the City Winery tomorrow night. And if you want a pair of tickets, you could go to our Facebook group called WBEZ Worldview Community. It's not our Facebook page. It's our community group, WBEZ Worldview Community Join the group and comment on the post about the tickets there, and we'll select a couple of people at random who comment in the next hour or so to get a free pair of tickets to see Edan at City Winery tomorrow night. Uh, The Facebook page, once again, is 
WBEZ Worldview Community. Nari posts all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Nari, uh, it sounds terrific. Sounds like fun, and people will uh, get to see a show. Oh, definitely. It seems like it's a complete Israeli experience, so not just music, food, and everything else. Idan, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for supporting the music. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you. Idan Rahel, thanks for joining us. Nari, we have one more mention, one more thing that people should know about that's going on this weekend, and it sounds like a lot of fun. Yes, we're going to Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, the old Zaire, and the act is called Zaiko Langa Langa. Uh, they're performing tonight, March 22nd, 8 p.m. at the Old Town School. And this is an organization that has been around since 1969 in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they were awarded the best Congolese musical group of the 20th century by the Congolese Media Association. So these guys are not messing around. That's a, that's a huge accomplishment when you think about how many great musicians have come out of the old Zaire and the new DRC. <laughs> so that's a huge accomplishment for them. And Zyko Langa Langa is a 20-piece band on tour of the U.S. and Canada for the first time in 20 years. It sounds like a, a real opportunity for people. Yeah, it should be a fun evening. Zyko Langa Langa at the Old Town School of Folk Music tonight at 8 p.m. Nari Safavi, thanks for another great edition of Weekend Passport. It was a privilege to be here again. <laughs> Monday on Worldview, I will talk with Amy Webb, the futurist, about her new book on artificial intelligence. I talked with Amy Webb before a live audience at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We'll have some questions and action there, too. And we'll get down deep in the details of what artificial intelligence means for your life, for big business, for our societies, and for the Cold War of artificial intelligence with China. Hope you can join us Monday on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.